All right, if you will, open your Bibles with me to Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. We talk a lot about gospel nuggets here at Desert Springs Church. That is verses that succinctly summarize the message of the gospel. That is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Ryan preached on John 3.16 on Christmas Eve, and I really can't think of a better gospel nugget than John 3.16. Our text from Galatians this morning is what we might call a gospel story nugget. It provides something of a key for unlocking the story of the Bible, helping us to understand and to see how the various parts of the Bible fit together and focus on Jesus Christ. So now I'll read Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Abraham believed God and it was counted, counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Ab- Abraham, the man of faith. Well, we don't talk very much about Abraham, but some people do. Certainly devout Jews will trace their physical lineage back to Abraham through Isaac, and this is what makes them Jewish. They're children of Abraham. As well, uh, those from the Islamic faith will trace it, their ethnic heritage or the, the ethnic heritage of that faith back to Ishmael, the brother of Isaac, both sons of Abraham. They call Abraham the first Muslim. Both claim to be true children of Abraham. The Jews reading the Old Testament are from Isaac, whom God chose over Ishmael to carry his promise. Muslims claim that our Old Testament account botched it and got the sons wrong, and that it was actually Ishmael who carries the promise. Both of these religions stand or fall on the story of their ethnic beginnings with Abraham. Then there's Christianity, the third of what is called the Abrahamic faiths, religions. The writers of the New Testament spoke about Abraham frequently, 67 times in the New Testament. His name is mentioned on average in my Bible, that would be once every three and a half pages. Sometimes Abraham is mentioned in a long genealogy. But even when a genealogy is shortened to say three names, including Jesus, Abraham makes the cut, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here in Galatians 3, Paul dials up Abraham to make a very important point. And that is that God saves people by faith and that it has always been this way. Galatians 3.8, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He personifies scripture here to show that it speaks with one mind because indeed it has one author. He says the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ was even in seed form in God's promise to Abraham as it was pointing forward to the day when Jesus himself would come. And while some things have changed in God's plan across time, God's plan has not changed. And at the center of that plan is a salvation that is always and without exception by faith. I can remember as a new Christian walking by a Sunday school classroom and overhearing 
the teachers say this to children. Why did the people of the Old Testament have all those sacrifices and laws? Well, that's how they were saved. We believe in Jesus. Now, people understand how the Old and the New Testament relate differently, but I don't know anyone studied in Scripture that says that. However, it does highlight the confusion that is understandable and easy to experience in trying to see how the Old, New, Old Testament with its law, Mosaic law, and the New Testament do relate. What, what was the good news the gospel preached to Abraham that Paul is talking about? How does that relate to Jesus and his cross? And how does that relate to us and how we are made right with God? What does it have to do with me? Good questions and important questions. You can't tell from the verses we read standing on their own here in Galatians that Paul is pretty riled up, but he sure is riled up. So before we unpack our specific verses, let's take a few minutes to consider what is going on in the book of Galatians leading up to chapter 3. In the first two verses of chapter 1, we'll get us started. And there we read, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father to the churches of Galatia. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, he hasn't said so yet, but he sort of did here. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. Now, if in greeting somebody you hear me say, Hi, I'm Trent, not from Texas, nor any city in Texas, but from Albuquerque, you might guess that I was trying to put down a wretched rumor. And you would be right. So it is, so it is here with Paul in Galatians. If you've read Paul's various greetings, he never does this, but in this one, he has to make it profoundly clear in his first sentence that he is from God. He is no mere man. He is God's man, an apostle, God's messenger with God's message. Now in verse 6 through 10, he comes out swinging. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, now he's riled up in that book as well, but he takes a paragraph to reflect on God's grace to his readers. Here he just must cut to the chase. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul is astonished that the churches of Galatia, churches he helped start, are sort of changing their mind on the most important thing in the universe, the gospel, what makes Christianity Christianity, where our salvation is. Certain men called Judaizers have joined the church and are insisting that to be right with God, Christians must believe in Jesus, but also obey the Mosaic law or parts of it, live a Jewish, an Old Testament Jewish life as Christians. And what was this law? What were, what were they laying on these Christians to do? The laws given to Moses that govern the life of Israel. Specifically, they wanted them to uh, adhere to circumcision. And there are indications that they're uh, also insisted on the observance of the Sabbath and various food laws. These were, these were all, these three things were those things that marked out the Jewish people from non-Jewish people, from the Gentiles. And both Gentiles and Jew, Jews, both parties understood these to be the things that set Jews apart. 
Now, is this really that big of a deal? Is it really a big deal that some Christians, Gentiles who had become Christians, faith in Jesus, were being persuaded and considering keeping the Mosaic law? Well, apparently, Paul was calling down curses on the person who preaches this stuff. He is calling on God to damn that person. So yes, it's a big deal. And, and, uh, and it is in direct opposition to the only saving gospel and the gospel that Paul has been preaching. And that's why the burden of Paul's letter is to insist that the gospel he has been preaching of faith alone is God's gospel. Where his gospel is rejected, God's gospel is rejected. And if it is not God's gospel that is believed, then it is no gospel at all, for it is not good news if it is good for nothing, much less salvation. And in case his motive is in question, and it is, he says in verse 10, for I am now seeking the approval of man. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not have become a servant of Christ. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Do you hear the sound of defensiveness in his voice? It surely is there, but it's not self-defensiveness, it's God-defensiveness. The Judaizers are undermining Paul's authority as an apostle in order to undermine the gospel that he's been preaching. Maybe it doesn't save. Maybe Paul has missed something here, a few screws loose. Maybe he's actually in it for himself, likes being the leader guy, don't listen to him. And in chapters 1 through 2, Paul argues for the divine origin of his calling and his gospel from his experience. After all, he received his gospel from a personal visit from Jesus Christ. And if that's hard to believe, it really should be harder to believe that this man, Paul, would ever become a Christian in the first place. In his former life, he was hungry, hungry for two things. First, the extinction of the church and Christianity. And second, his own greatness. And by persecuting the church, he actually accelerated his own exaltation, adding his persecution of these Christians to his already good long list of credentials. His gospel, though, uh, is what he received from Jesus in a vision, and at that point, everything changed. He disappeared into obscurity for almost two decades. If he was living for himself, he would not have converted to Christ. He was doing just fine living for himself before Christ. But Paul never looked back, and he never got off message, even at great cost to himself, and trusted Christian leaders had accepted him. His gospel is God's gospel. He received it from Christ, and his life confirms it. That's chapters 1 through 2, an argument from experience. But now in chapter 3, Paul stops talking about himself and talks directly to his readers. He's been arguing from his own salvation story, And now he will argue from God's salvation story in Scripture. And get ready for this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Well, tell us what you really think, Paul. Right? It's clear enough uh, what he means, but let me put this in some, some more familiar terms. You stupid idiots! Who has tricked you? 
You saw Jesus himself hanging on the cross in open public view. Did you become Christians by keeping the law or by hearing the message of the cross and believing? So why is it that you think you can return to the laws of Moses and keep that with the gospel of Christ for salvation and be safe as if anything that you do can add anything to the cross of Christ. And now we arrive at the text of our sermon where Paul gets out his Bible to make his argument and his point clear. Are you saved by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was the gospel preached to Abraham? Well, here's our first point. The gospel preached to Abraham was good news of righteousness through faith. So we've said that the gospel is salvation through faith, but it is a gospel of righteousness received from God through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, the Galatian church was in danger of forgetting the only way to righteousness, Perfect righteousness is the only way to God. And if you lose the only way to God, you have lost the only way to God. The Judaizers are holding up a key to a car that has no engine. It won't get them anywhere. Their way to God was quite literally a dead end. And it wasn't that they had said Jesus didn't die on the cross. It's that they said you must believe in Jesus and you must also do these things in order to be acceptable before God. And that right there is an undoing of the gospel itself. For it says that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough for us and that we can contribute something. And he turns to Abraham to make his point clear. Well, familiar with the story or not of Abraham... We're always good for review of the story of Abraham. Ever miss the beginning of a movie and wonder what is going on? The person you're watching it with says, tough luck. You will figure it out. You might and you might not. But if you watch the beginning of a movie, you're always better off even reviewing it. So here's the beginning of the Bible. After God sent Adam out of the garden for unrighteousness, and judged Noah and judged Noah's generation for unrighteousness and halted the build, building plans at Babel for the unrighteous idea that people could be as great as God. That's when Abraham's story begins in Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 was a compressed history of the world covering nearly two millennia. Then from chapters 12 through 50, the story slows way down and focuses on one man, Abraham, and four of his generations. And that tells us something about the book of Genesis and its agenda and the whole Bible. Whatever's going on here with Abraham is key to the story. And God did not speak to Abraham, by the way, because he was a righteous person. When Joshua was reminding the people of Israel of their roots, he was sure to remind them, thus says the Lord, long ago your fathers served other gods. So Abraham was an idol worshiper. Uninvited and on his own initiative, God came to him, and the first thing God gave to him was a promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is a very nice promise and it sounds familiar. God told Abraham, uh, Adam excuse me, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and he gave Adam dominion over the land and everything in it. 
That didn't really work out. He said much the same thing to Noah. And that didn't really work out. The story of Babel is the story of them not spreading out and trying to build their way to God. Now he comes to Abraham, a man named Abraham at the time, before God changed his name, not with a command, but with a promise, and told him to go. And we read, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. As time went on, though, the talk, this talk of land and blessing became a little hard to believe. See, God was writing a story in which the promises he makes look impossible to fulfill. And after many years, his wife kind of thought that it would be funny for it even to be possible for them to have children. He was 75 when God spoke to him the first time, and she was 100, I believe. No, 90. He was 100 when they actually had a child. Abraham thought he had a better idea one that would work. So he asked God if they could substitute his servant for the promised son God has talked about but hasn't shown up for many years. But still committed to his own idea, God took Abraham outside to teach him a lesson graciously. Genesis 15, 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I promise I will do this, God is saying. Then there was a covenant ceremony in which God basically was saying, this is all on me to happen. This will happen. Then he changes Abram's name to Abraham, signifying his sovereignty over his life and his certainty of his promise. This will happen. You see, the story of Abraham is the story of God making a promise to an unrighteous man. And on account of that man's faith in that promise, considering that unrighteous man to be righteous. And not because his faith was a good act that was worthy enough of being called righteous. Faith being merely taking God at his word. Accepting his promise is as good as done. Receiving is a good word to substitute for the word faith. He believed and God counted that, counted to him as righteousness. And this is really good news for humanity since we as humans have a righteousness problem for sure. God has it, we don't, God requires it, but the good news is of the gospel that God gives it freely to those who will receive it. The good news promised to Abraham is good for all of us. Remember in Galatians 3.8, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So even there in his promise to Abraham, he's saying, one day the Gentiles, those who aren't from your physical lineage, will also be justified, made considered righteous on account of their faith before God. Abraham would be righteous through faith and so would the nations. You see, the Galatian church had lost the wonder of this story. They'd lost the profundity of it. It's amazing. They were in danger of forgetting it altogether. And this showed up in a sloppy reading of the Bible to serve their own salvation system. They were reading the Bible, we could say, backwards. They were reading God's marvelous promise and gift to Abraham through the lens of God's law given through Moses. But that isn't quite right. Some might say you can make the Bible to say anything. But the Bible doesn't say you can make the Bible to say anything. Here in Galatians, we have a very careful argument where Paul is taking the Old Testament and showing them that it reads in a particular way to make a particular point in their salvation 
in one way and always has been. It's not a wax nose you can shape to fit your preferences or your system. 317, he appeals to chronology. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The Mosaic law came after this promise, the story of Abraham, which says that we're made righteous through faith. Why then the law? Paul anticipates that question. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The Mosaic law, laws given by Moses, were temporary and were also ineffective. Verse 21, for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's temporary, it's ineffective. What's the point of it? Why did God give it? Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In order that we might be justified by faith. Going back to the Mosaic law or adding it to the Christian gospel is to nullify the Christian gospel. It's like looking at a photo of a recipe of a turkey dinner when it's sitting right in front of you. It doesn't make any sense. It can't satisfy you. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to whet your appetite for what can. In his letter to Romans, Paul says that Abraham, in chapter 4, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still so uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. So God gave him the sign of what had already taken place in him and God had already promised him. So as we read the Bible, the order in which things happen is designed by God. And there's a divine interpretation. And here God made a promise to Abraham and he did that specifically before he'd given Abraham commands or Israel laws. So then the Mosaic law leads to salvation not by telling Israel what to do, but by telling them what their need is and who to look for. A priest who can offer a sacrifice that works and not one for his own sins. A sacrifice that doesn't need to be offered again because it works. Somebody who can bring Sabbath rest that lasts forever. And someone who can save them who has the true circumcision of heart, who's set apart for God in his heart and can give them the new heart that circumcision pointed to. Now, you may not be a huge fan of the preaching on sin. There are preachers out there who are with you on this. They preach for encouragement. Um, but the reality is, is that our greatest need is that of to have our sin problem fixed. And God's great grace is seen only against the backdrop of the reality of our need. And the law in the Old Testament is not a lot of fun because we're not very good at keeping it. Looking at it, considering God's commands and finding ourselves short is like being really, really ugly and looking in the mirror. It is a prerequisite for receiving the good news of Christ, however. It is a prerequisite. There's no way around it. Have you noticed that we don't sing about sin here at Desert Springs Church unless it's about what God has done with our sin? In Romans 4, Paul says that if we're justified by works, we have something to boast about. Salvation would be like getting paid for a hard life's work, but in heaven we won't sing about our own strength and greatness, but about God's saving strength and greatness. So what has God done with our sin? 
What is Christ done with our sin? This is where the curses of the Old Testament law come in really handy. If you don't obey, there are curses that follow. Paul refers to this in 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's what the law brings. That's all it brings. What does Christ bring? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And on the cross, he takes our curse. The Galatians lost the wonder of God's promise and gift to Abraham, and so they were reading their Old Testament backwards. The law is temporary, it's ineffective, and points to salvation. God's promise to Abraham is eternal, it's absolutely effective, and it is, when received by faith, salvation itself. I don't know of any church in Albuquerque teaching the requirement for circumcision. I haven't heard of a class offered on the subject for especially interested congregants. And I haven't heard even the most confused TV preacher even suggest or even mention circumcision. So is it totally irrelevant? This relationship to the law to Jesus, is it totally irrelevant? Well, not in the least. It's not just interesting Bible facts. If you're not a Christian, how do you comfort yourself for your sin? You may not use the word sin, but you know what it's like to screw up with the universe, to be on the wrong side of right, to feel guilt. How do you comfort yourself? Is it with the good that you've done? Is it by the hope that tomorrow when you get up, you'll be a different person, a better person? Maybe live the rest of your life in a way to atone for the other part of your life that wasn't so good? Maybe you have a hard time thinking you'd be worthy at all or could ever make it, so you've kind of given up. You think you aren't good for anything and you're without hope. God could never accept you. You could never be righteous. You know you aren't righteous. I was recently in conversation with a man about the gospel. When I mentioned that I was a sinner, he almost fell over. He was literally laughing red in the face. In his mind, somebody who goes to church or is on staff at a church or teaches the Bible is not a sinner. Uh, He was a sinner, And I just couldn't understand. He could not be helped. I promise you I'm a sinner. I believe the Bible. And I believe what it says about God crediting unrighteous people with righteousness. And it is all that I have got. And if you're a sinner without hope, feeling like God could never accept you, I promise you, by faith, God can consider you righteous. And it will be at that point all that you have as well. Abraham worshipped other gods, but speaking about Abraham and of us, Paul writes in Romans 4, And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So whether you are trying to work for God's approval or whether you've given up because you know you can't make it, both of those are looking to self for the solution to your alienation from God and your guilt. And I plead with you to look outside yourself to Jesus, and to his righteousness, and to receive that by faith. And if you are a Christian, how do you comfort yourself as a sinner still? What is your only hope in life and in death? Do you say with the old catechism that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. How is it possible God can make us righteous, consider us righteous? 
It's because he covers our sins with the blood of Jesus. Jesus takes our death that we deserve and he gives to us the righteousness, righteous life that he lived. And it's our comfort in death and in life. If you were plagued by a guilty conscience, this is our comfort in life too. We look to Jesus. Or maybe you don't think about sin very much at all because it's pretty much taken care of for you. You wouldn't say that because you don't believe that, but you really just aren't thinking about yourself as needy of God's righteousness very often. You aren't leaning on it. Who in the last week in this room or in your family have you slandered in your mind or out loud to a family member or a close confidant and why? And there may be what you're accounting on to make yourself acceptable before God, what makes you good. And the subtle pride there is much more subtle than many of the sins that may bother you of other people. Very careful. Christ's righteousness is all we've got. The Galatian church liked to think they could reach God, but Jesus hung on the cross precisely because not one of us can lift a finger apart from God's grace. We need his righteousness. So Paul dealt with the chronological dimension of the Galatian problem. They were getting the Bible out of order. The promise is paramount. The law was temporary. There's a genealogical dimension here as well. What of Abraham's children? Wasn't God's promise that he made to Abraham and to his offspring? Is he going to keep it or not? Isn't it's Abraham's offspring and Abraham that receives the promise? Sure was. And thankfully, the good news of uh, a gospel preached to Abraham of righteousness through faith was also a gospel, good news of adoption through faith. Let's take another pass at our text, looking at this second point of the good news of our adoption through faith. Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, if someone were to say to you on the street, Hey, God doesn't accept you. You aren't a child of Abraham. I think you'd think that's pretty weird. You'd probably tell somebody somebody said that to you. But in the Bible, being a child of Abraham is the deal breaker. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3.15. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. In other words, God keeps his promises and he made them to Abraham and his offspring. But what does he mean by offspring? Here's what Paul says in verse 16. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Interesting. Now, there's just no way, and it's not the case here, that Paul is saying that when God made this promise to Abraham, he was talking about Abraham and one of his kids would be blessed. No, no. God took him outside and showed him the stars. Those are his descendants, his children, how many he'll have from among the nations who will be blessed along with him. Many. But Paul is reading that promise in the context of the storyline of the Bible that is always, always, always looking out for one guy to show up. A son of Eve, after Abraham, a son of David. Through Abraham, the nations will be blessed, but that blessing will come by means of one who will come from Abraham. 
And Paul is pointing this out. The whole story is waiting for a guy. And that's why he can say in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So through Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the expected one, through faith in Jesus, all those who are united to Jesus by faith are now children of Abraham by faith and receive the inheritance and the promise and the blessing that was given and promised to Abraham. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. In verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Being an offspring in Abraham is is very important. Who are the real children of Abraham? Not those who share his blood, but those who are trusting the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham. A DNA test would not be the way to find out who the true children of Abraham are, but a faith test. So are you believing in Jesus? This morning, the son of Abraham. If so, you are a true child of Abraham and you are safe. I'm sure you've heard this song about Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I'm sorry. Uh... D.A. Carson, Carson did that when he came for Claris a year or so ago, and so I thought I would do it for you as well. It's hard to just read the words without hearing the tune. And it's a good song. It'd be hard to listen to or sing for too long, but it's not a bad song. If the Judaizers taught any Bible songs when they visited Galatia to the children, they probably taught one that went like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and you are not. So let's all get together for a little procedure we call circumcision. (laughs) No joke, this is what they were saying. And thank you to Philip Riken for that fantastic insight, the president of Wheaton College. We are children of Abraham by faith. One commentator put it this way, if someone were to say, now there is a son of George Washington, what would you think? Whoa, how does he know? And that's cool. No, you wouldn't think that. You'd think he's a patriot. He's a man who believes in the founding principles. He's a man for free democracy. He's a man who might give his life because he thinks these things are so essential to human flourishing and human good. He's a son of George Washington. So it is with the sons of Abraham. Blood is nothing. Faith in the promises of God are everything. And in the Old Testament, that meant believing God would do what he said he would do. However veiled the specifics were, on this side of the cross, it means that our faith is focused on Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought that if the Old Testament saints could be saved by believing God's promise, having never heard the name Jesus Christ and never conceived of the crucifixion, that maybe someone today who's never heard the name of Jesus or conceived of the cross could believe in one God that they need to save them and be saved? This is not the Bible's presentation. As the promises of God are more focused, so the faith required for those who will be counted righteous must be focused on those promises. 
Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 4. Listen to him describe Abraham's faith and then ours. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. The father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promised promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In the words, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now that is specific. That is faith in Jesus. And righteousness will be credited to us for believing in Jesus and his work. Maybe the Bible for you is the best go-to for what you believe, but it's not the authority when it rubs you wrong. Maybe you're still unpersuaded that conscious faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And I'd say it's compassion that has led you to that. And I understand the horror of thinking that anyone might meet God at death on the other side of his favor. But it was also compassion and an even greater realization of that horror that led Paul to write this very serious letter in strong words with such urgency. It may feel better to believe that everyone is safe with God or that somebody you have in mind is safe with God. But if it is not true, they are not better off for it. The Bible insists that only Abraham's children are safe with God and Abraham's children are those from among the nations who have faith in Abraham's promised son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one gospel. It is God's gospel. It is good news of righteousness through faith that makes possible our adoption through faith. And third, it is good news of blessing through faith. Let's read our text again and note the reference to blessing, Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Blessing is not a very heavy word to us. We think of it as what you get when you sneeze. Think of it as what you might hear if you're hanging around a person who uses the word a lot, maybe in a meaningful way, maybe as Christian filler. But it's not a cheap word. And it's not cheap because it actually refers to material blessing, which is how the word is also used by prosperity preachers. No, that's even more cheap. What God is promising here to Abraham is everything that Adam lost in the garden. It refers to Abraham's lineage, and it refers to the life in the land of promise. But Paul in Romans 4 will say, what was Abraham's inheritance, the land? He was promised the whole world. Actually looks forward to the new creation. The land of promise was a down payment or a microcosm of of God's glory filling the whole earth and his people filling the whole earth. And the new creation, when we would be with God and God would be with us, And we would be his people. But at base, it's a promise that Abraham and his descendants will know God in the way humanity was made to know him. Now some people might question Protestants 
maybe they got a little too serious about justification by faith at the Reformation. The idea at the Reformation that salvation comes through faith alone and is dependent wholly on Christ's righteousness alone, which we can add nothing to. That being the crux of why Protestants broke from the Catholic Church. Is there really a big difference? We have the Trinity in common. The Trinity is a big deal. True enough, but justification by faith alone is still the difference between the blessing of God and being dead in our sins. Justification by faith alone is still the difference between adopted, being adopted into Abraham's family and being outside that family and outside the promises of God. Add anything to faith in Jesus, add anything to Christ's righteousness to merit your favor before God, and you have none. Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing comes through faith. It is made possible by the righteousness of Christ. The word blessing is no cheap Christian filler. It carries the weight of everything Christ came to give us. And to who? Neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. There is no religion that dignifies humanity like this. There is a difference between men and women, but respecting salvation and how we come to God... There are no differences from one human to another. We come the same way. This promise of blessing is a promise of life with God. And that's what Peter meant when he quoted God's promise to Abraham in Acts 3. And then said, having raised up his servant, sent him, God did, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The blessing is God's leading you in repentance. It's why Paul quoted David before quoting God's promise to Abraham. When David said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count no sin. This blessing is life with God, forgiveness. And I can't help but hear God's promise to Abraham in the background in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1. This will be familiar words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The blessing of God is being with God, adopted as his child, redeemed by Christ's blood, and all merely received, not earned, through faith. And the Galatian church was in danger of forgetting the true nature of Abraham's blessing. Think about this. The Galatian churches were planted by Paul, the guy who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, met Jesus and received his gospel in a vision. Some of these folks apparently saw Jesus crucified or at least lived among the generation that would have seen Jesus crucified. We should not think that we are above missing the heart of the gospel. We may even keep all of the trappings of our faith, but if we lose Christ's righteousness as our only boast and hope, 
then we have lost everything. My friends, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame that is anything else but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then when Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may we then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. So what do we do with all this? One suggestion is to read the Bible more. 2013 is here. It's a good time to start. No no, no bad time to start reading the Bible more. Um, Working through the Bible can uh, take take some energy. It takes discipline to read every day the scriptures. Maybe that it's discipline not to do other things with your free time. Facebook, shopping, TV, whatever. If there's no Bible in your life, start cutting stuff out that's extra. Change your true north when you're bored. Uh, if you're real busy, get up earlier. Stay up later. Find, build the time and there's nothing more important. And meeting with God every day will have its way with you because you've met with God and his spirit uses his word. But there's also a cumulative effect to reading the Bible over time. So that by the time you know the Bible's story over years of reading, you land on Galatians and you can see that not only does the Bible say specifically that, that righteousness is through faith, but you understand from the story of the Bible that it's impossible for it to be any way else. And you won't fall prey to the danger of forgetting the gospel. Know the scriptures, read it. Remember what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And how does he grow? Like a tree over time. So keep reading. And as you do, meditate on the promises of God and praise God for the free gift of righteousness and preach the free gift of righteousness, the good news of it, to your neighbors and to the nations. And cry out to him as your Abba Father and preach the good news of adoption through faith to your neighbors and the nations. And enjoy the blessing of his presence as you read. And preach the good news of the blessing of his presence through faith among your neighbors and the nations. This, my friends, is God's gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the same gospel preached to Abraham. It's by faith alone. And let's not forget it.